Hey, I get to wrap up our series uh, in the book of Isaiah today, so I'm excited about that. If you have a a study guide there, you might want to pull that out of your worship folder. I'm going to read our scripture for us today, which comes right from Isaiah chapter 43. So would you please give careful attention to the reading of the Word of God. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel... Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious And honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory." whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God, yes, and from ancient days, I am He. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Isaiah in the Bible has been called the mini-Bible because just like in our Bible, it contains, or just like our Bible contains 66 books, Isaiah contains 66 chapters. And just as the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, speak a lot about mankind's sin and God's judgment, so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah speak of that very same thing. And... Just like the final 27 books of the Bible, the New Testament speak of God's heart and plan to redeem a people for himself and forgive them and remove their judgment. So beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 and on through chapter 66, we see in those 27 chapters, God entering the picture of Israel's rebellion to declare his intent to save them and to restore them despite their sins. So In the book of Isaiah, we have kind of a mini Bible. How cool is that? I want to review with you again the storyline of the book of Isaiah. The chosen people of God, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, were not faithful to the Lord. (laughs) Same song, third stanza, right? This happened over and over and over again. They turned away from God in their hearts, even though their God named Yahweh, even though he was the one who had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, evidently they'd lost sight of his goodness to them, even though he had guided them into that land of promise, right? And defeated their enemies before them, they still turned away, and even though after bringing them into the land, he blessed them and had granted them great prosperity under King David and then under King Solomon, even then they evidently were not satisfied With God, he was not enough for them, and so they ignored his laws, and they dishonored him in their daily lives. They even became enamored with other gods, and of course, all this was an offense, was an egregious offense to Yahweh, to God, and so God raised up this man, this prophet Isaiah, and he 
sent him to his people with a message, with a very grave and serious message. And Isaiah told them of God's deep displeasure with their idolatrous ways. And he told them that as a result, God's judgment was coming upon them. And that would take the form of being conquered by another nation, another kingdom, the nation, the kingdom of Babylon. It would result in the loss of their land, the loss of their freedom and autonomy, and that they and their children would be hauled away and subjected to slavery to a foreign power. Now, even though they had brought this on themselves, that must have been devastating for these people to hear this news from the lips of the prophet Isaiah. That happy future that they had imagined so many times was not going to be. Instead, hardship awaited them. Cruel servitude to a foreign power awaited their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's the message for 39 chapters in Isaiah. But then in chapter 40, beginning there, Isaiah's tone begins to change. And chapter 40 begins, Comfort my people, comfort my people, says the Lord. Yes, the sin of the people was great. Yes, they were going to be judged for it. But the heart of God begins to come through. His heart of love for his people. And Isaiah reveals the desire of God to restore them to restore his people, to one day gather them back to their land. You remember when I read, bring them from the north and the south and the west and bring them all back, all of the sons and daughters of Israel, and give them their homeland back and and eventually to bring them a savior, a spiritual savior, one called the servant of the Lord, the just and merciful servant that if you were here last week, that's who we talked about. And here in Isaiah 43, we get a peek into the heart of God. How good is that? We get a peek into the loving heart of God and we see him revealing his desires for his people and his intentions towards them and his affections, his feelings. God himself is speaking in this chapter. He's speaking for himself. And there are several things that he conveys as this chapter unfolds. First, he promises his presence and his ultimate protection for his redeemed people. That's the first three verses. And then he declares how precious his people are to him, that he loves them, and he restates his pledge to end their exile one day and to return them to their homeland. That's verses 3 through 7. And then he once again presses his case that he is the only God, that he is the only one who can do God things, like predict the future and then bring it to pass. And that other so-called gods are actually nothing and the people who worship them are deceived. That's verses 8 through 13. And then he promises that he will indeed act on behalf of his people to end their slavery just like he'd done before when he delivered his people out of Egypt. And he will do this new thing, it says. New thing. God is a God of new things. And his people will see it and will praise him once again. That's verses 14 through 21. And then it says... That he will do all of this not because of how good his people have been, but actually despite how bad they have been, and that's verses 22 through 28. So there's a whole chapter. We're done. There is so much to draw from in this chapter, so much rich truth in Isaiah 43, truth that's not just beneficial for historical people who lived thousands of years ago, but beneficial for your life today and for my life today. And what I felt led to do today is to challenge you to think about and consider and ponder four spiritual realities that call out to us from this chapter, four, let's call them solid truths that can serve as anchors for your soul and anchors for my soul. Because you see, it's highly likely that at some point in your life, you too will find yourself passing through the waters. You too will find yourself walking through the fire. And in that season of distress, I believe that you can can steady your soul by tethering yourself to these four solid truths. Only God is God. You exist to glorify him. God loves his people dearly, and only he can save.
You can anchor your soul to those four solid truths and be immovable during the tumultuous times and seasons of life. And when you're going through it, when you're going through the fire, I urge you to bring these realities to mind, to stand on them, to speak them to yourself and to others and to God and, yes, to the evil one, the one who wants to take you down. Let me speak about each of these four anchors for your soul. Number one, only God is God. God takes great pains in this chapter to reinforce and reestablish this truth. I am the Lord. He says it multiple times. Now, I want you to do a little mental exercise with me. Would you take a moment and imagine, just imagine being God for a moment? It's not that hard. You've tried it before. (laughs) I have too. Maybe not quite in this way. Imagine being God. As God, you delight in being God. You revel in your godness. You love being who you are. You are one, yet you are three. You've always existed. And you absolutely love being in community with yourself, Father, Son, Spirit. And love flows in that circle of love, right? Honor abounds in that circle. Pleasing the other members of the Holy Trinity brings unfathomable joy to your heart. And as God, you take pride, proper pride, in in working together as one to create new things. Because you are a God of new things. Because you have this overflowing love in your heart, you decide one day to create a tiny little universe that contains a minuscule little galaxy in which you place a microscopic little star that you cause to be orbited by a tiny speck of dirt called planet Earth. I'm just trying to put things in perspective. And then you decide to populate that little speck of dirt, that little planet, with teeny tiny little inhabitants, nearly invisible in relative size and proportion to you, You decide to create these inhabitants so that you can expand your circle of love and invite them in so they can experience your love too. You see, as God, you have more love to give. And your heart fills with satisfaction as you do that, as you create the world and create human beings and and as you create this lush, beautiful environment for humans to live in. And you love them so much that you even shrink yourself down, 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 down so that you can walk with them in the garden that you have placed them in. Doesn't the Bible say that he walked with them and talked with them? That garden they call home? And you, and you, you, you share life with them. You laugh with them. You, I don't know, tell jokes with them. <laughs> you, you enjoy your creation and you share love together And also, in your desire to expand that circle to include even many more, you enable these human beings you've created to co-create offspring with you and bring more into existence, and they, they enjoy doing so. But in time, which you also created, time, both they and their offspring decide that they want to replace you that they want to be God instead of you. This other being that you created and gave choice to who once led worship in heaven became so full of himself that you cast him down to that same little planet and and there he went about enticing these first human beings to join his little rebellion and through cunning deception he lured these ones upon you had stamped your very image He lured them into substituting themselves for you. And they forsook your sovereignty and claimed self-sovereignty. They cast off their dependence upon you in favor of personal autonomy. They started following their own ways instead of your ways. In your boundless love, you'd already crafted a plan to show them your grace and rectify all of this, but they, they still turn away. They still give their hearts to gods of their own making, including themselves. 
Let me ask you, in our little mental excursion here into Godhood, how would that make you feel? You could squash the whole thing and start all over, which is basically what he did with the flood. But then it happened again. People again, post-flood, offered their hearts and lives to other so-called gods that didn't even exist. Listen to the Lord in this chapter, relentlessly seeking to reestablish himself as the only true God. Verse 3, For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 10, Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I, not some foreign God among you, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. I am the Lord, verse 15, your holy one, Israel's creator, your king. It's like he's having to remind them of this basic reality, and sometimes we need to be reminded too. Only God is God. Say that with me. Only God is God. There is no other God. And this is bedrock truth here. This is foundational truth to anchor your heart to. You are not God. I am not God. Satan is not God. No other human being is God, even though people try and play God sometimes. Even Kanye seems to be realizing that he's not God. (laughs) Though there was a time when he thought otherwise. Only God is God. He alone is sovereign over human history and over your life and my life. Floods will come, let me tell you. Fires will blaze, but God is over it all. Now listen, this may sound counterintuitive to you, but nothing will anchor your soul in difficult times more than the conviction that you are not in control, that someone else is, someone much wiser and much smarter than you and than me. That sounds strange, but that, 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 that just anchors you. It steadies you. Most of us have come to the point in life where we realize we can't control everything. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control other people. We can't even control our own kids once they get to a certain stage in life, right? We are not as sovereign, maybe, as we once thought we were you want your heart to remain steadfast during times of great turmoil attach yourself firmly to this simple truth only God is God the next soul anchor kind of follows logically from this one only God is God therefore number two we exist to glorify him we exist to glorify God now I know these are some big thoughts right I mean, you're thinking about the game yesterday and how well that went and where you're going for lunch this afternoon and going for Thanksgiving. These are big thoughts, big thoughts. The Bible is full of big thoughts. We human beings actually need to be gripped by huge transcendent truths if we're going to live this life well, our one and only life. Only God is God and we exist to glorify him. And that thought right there represents a huge mind shift, I believe, for most people. Because we don't come out of the womb thinking life should revolve around God. We come out of the room, room, or womb. We come hardwired from the factory to naturally think that life should revolve around me. Starting in the cradle, right? That's why this has been called the Copernican revolution of the soul. Everything revolves around him. If we're going to be the kind of people who can remain joyful during trials, who can stand our ground and not cave under pressure and grow through difficult times, we must experience that revolution. The reason we're on the planet is not to make a name for ourselves, but to make a name for him. Our purpose for being here is not to make ourselves look great, but to make God look great, because he is great. 
There's a kind of awakening, I think, that has to happen if people are going to see this, this truth and accept it, and beyond that, love it. Say, where are you getting this from? Verse, verses 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I created you for my glory, says God. This, this is his sworn testimony, and this is not the first time we see this in Isaiah. We've already seen it in just our little study of a few chapters in verse, chapter 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God wants his creation to behold his glory. Verse Eight of chapter 42. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is jealous, righteously jealous for his own glory. And Isaiah is going to continue pressing this theme into the people's minds later on. Chapter 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, he says, my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. I'm not just wiping you out, Israel, right now. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Some people hear these phrases and they want to apply them very narrowly and say, well, that really only applies to Israel, to, to the Jewish people. They, they were created for his glory, but when you read the rest of the Bible, it becomes pretty apparent that glorifying God is actually why everything exists. Not just Israel. How about Psalm 19.1? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they proclaim knowledge. So, the heavens, creation, is for his glory. Ephesians 3.21 says this, To him be glory in the church. So the church is for his glory. Creation is for his glory. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and for him are all things. That's pretty comprehensive. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So be it. It's all for his glory. The great apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half the New Testament, understood this in Philippians 1.20 as he was on trial and he was approaching the verdict and he knew it could go either way. He said this, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. If I live, I want it to be for his glory. If I die, I want it to be for his honor. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Those are some pretty mundane daily activities, right? We'll do those today. Eat and drink to the glory of God. Listen, everything, everything that exists was made to glorify God. And the word that Paul uses, you've heard me preach on this before, in Philippians 1.20, when he says, I want Christ to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, the, the Greek word is megaluno, megaluno. One version translates it magnified, magnified. I want Christ to be magnified, whether in my living or my dying. Paul wanted his remaining days that he might have on this earth or his death as a martyr to magnify Christ. There's two ways to magnify, right? You can magnify like a microscope, which makes tiny little things look a little bit bigger than they are. Or you can magnify like a telescope, which makes massive things look more like they are. And that's the way that Paul wanted his life to magnify God, like a telescope making a huge, massive God look more like he really is. These are big thoughts. I want to bring it down a little bit on a practical level. I think three insights come out of this fact that we exist to glorify God. Here's the first one. 
I don't know, did we give you any white space to write in there? Sorry. These are really good. I hope you write them somewhere. First, happiness in life is a byproduct. Happiness in life for human beings is a byproduct of aligning our lives with the purpose for which we were made. Peter Lord, I heard a sermon by a guy named Peter Lord once, and he very famously said this, things are happiest when they are doing what they were designed and made to do. That's true whether you're talking about a power saw, a fork. I brought a mixer in here once, and I went down to Kylie in the front row and said, should I use this mixer to cut your hair? How would you like that? <laughs> it would ruin your hair, and it would ruin the mixer. Things are happiest when they're functioning in accordance with their design purpose, and that's true of you and me as well. I wish the whole world understood that happiness doesn't come from pursuing happiness. It comes from doing what you were created to do with your life, which is to glorify God. That's where joy is. Living out the purpose for which God made us. That's a good insight, but here's another one. No matter what God in his sovereign will allows into our lives, it has that same purpose. He aims to be glorified in it and through it somehow. A miscarriage, a health diagnosis, a job loss, a relationship gone sour. If you're going through deep waters, if you feel like you're being thrown into a fiery furnace, there's a point to it. There's a reason for it. If everything in the universe is designed to glorify God, certainly that situation that you're going through right now has the very same purpose. God aims to receive glory. He aims to be magnified through it. And so the third insight is this. During those times, we have a choice. We have a choice. Will I align with God's purpose for me in this situation, or will I chafe under it? Will I seek out ways to show how great God is by my attitude and my responses and my words in this situation, or will I sink into self-pity and maybe even lash out at God for making me go through this? A great example of this, of aligning with God's purposes in the midst of hard things, comes from a, an incident that took place after these people, these Jewish people, were carried away into captivity in Babylon about 100 years later. The ruler of that empire's name was, as many of you know, Nebuchadnezzar. Why his mom named him Nebuchadnezzar, I have no idea. Probably means something like fiery furnace guy or something in that language. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, decided to have a massive statue made, a, a massive golden statue, an image probably of himself. And when it was completed, he had it set up, it says, in the plains. Like this massive statue, and he put it on the plains. Why? So everybody could see it <laughs> from, from a long distance away. And then, after it was all set up and ready, he, he scheduled, he called for a dedication ceremony. And he summoned all the people to come. And when the king of the kingdom summons all people to come, it's not really an invitation, it's a command. You better be there. And of course, everybody showed up. Tens of thousands of people there, and when they all got there, he issued a decree, and he said, everybody must bow down before this great image, bow down and worship, or bad things are going to happen to you. As you can imagine, everybody hit the ground, everybody hit the deck, laying prostrate before this image, everyone that is except three young men three of the captives, three of those who'd been carried away. Jewish guys who remained on their feet, and don't you know, they stuck out like a sore thumb on the landscape. <laughs> and when the king was told about their, their, their brazen disregard for his order, don't you think he about blew a gasket? He said, bring those guys to me. And there they are standing in front of him. And he said, is this true that you've defied my, my order? In Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, not sure why those are their names, replied to him, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, very respectful, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I read that and I get chills up and down my spine. Whoa! Evidently, their souls were anchored to something really solid. Evidently, they knew that there's only one God worth bowing down to. Only God is God. And apparently, they wanted to magnify the Lord through their living or through their dying. They said, we believe our God will deliver us from your fiery furnace, O king, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. The last thing we're going to do is deny our great God. He's worth living for, and he is worth dying for. Oh God, give us young men and women like that. That's called having some backbone. And that kind of conviction only arises within those who know their purpose for being here on the planet, right? Whose soul is anchored to something greater than themselves, who know that they exist to glorify God, whether by living or dying. Wow. Only God is God, and we exist to glorify Him, to make God look worthy to make God look great because that is what he is by our choices, our priorities, really by our whole lives. Here's the third anchor for our souls. God loves his people. God loves his people. Now from the moment I mentioned that God calls us to glorify him from that moment when I said God is all about his glory some of you became uncomfortable and you were kind of chafing under that you thought well wait a second I thought God loved me I thought God was all about me if, if he's all about his own glory how is that loving towards me but I want you to know that scripture does not place these two truths at odds with each other like I said earlier God in our little mental exercise of being God God created the universe and God created human beings in order to share his love with us, to show us his love, to share it with us, to shower his love upon us. God loves his people. Listen to these sweet words. and Let them sink again into your heart. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. I know your name. The Bible says our names are inscribed on the palms of his hands. He must have big hands. <laughs> you are mine, he says. I bought you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. They won't carry you away. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom. We'll come back to this. Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are what? Precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid for I am with you. What a wonderful truth. God loves his people. Yes, God is first and foremost about his own glory. Yes. But instead of chafing under that, we should actually be thankful for that because it means he aims to show and shower his love on those that he has created so that we can know and experience his love firsthand and then return praise to him as a result. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible describing God's covenant love for his Jewish people right here. And there are two historical events in view here in which God proved his love for his people. One of them had already happened. The other was still to come. So the event from Israel's past was the Exodus. 
it was legendary. God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, from Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's army. When he writes in verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when he says in verse 3, I give Egypt for your ransom, everybody who heard that would have immediately known this was referring to that famous event from their history called the Exodus when God showed his devotion to his people by delivering them from slavery. They would have immediately thought, we shouldn't doubt that our God loves us. We shouldn't think that our God will ever abandon us. He proved his love when he delivered our ancestors out of that enslavement in Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh when he took our ancestors through the Red Sea on dry ground with the walls of water piled up on each side. That was the first event, something from their past. The second event that's being referred to here, I believe, was yet in their future, our past, but their future. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. What could that be referring to? Well, how about those three young men who refused to bow down before that image in Babylon because after hearing of their defiance, Nebuchadnezzar was so enraged that he heated his furnace up seven times hotter. I think they had these big bellow things, right? So get that thing hotter. I want to incinerate these guys because of their defiance of my decree. He's thinking, you know, we'll just see what your God can do. Throws them into the fire. The book of Daniel records this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, uh, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? I was thinking it was three guys, right? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, he said, out of his worldview, looks like a son of the gods. <laughs> it's different. There's a different kind of person in there with these three guys. Pretty shook up. He said, he said pull them out, pull them out of there. Bring, bring, bring them to me. And when they were brought before him, he was stunned that the, that the fire had not harmed them at all. Not a hair on their head was burnt, not, not a singed eyebrow, no smell of smoke among them. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. God loves his people. And here in Isaiah, in essence, he's reassuring them of this. Listen, he's saying, I'm the one who redeemed you. I know your name, you're mine. I love you with a steadfast love, with a covenant love. You're precious to me. So you don't need to fear when you pass through the waters that are piled up high on both sides of you because just like I was with your ancestors when I delivered them from Pharaoh's army, so I will be with you. And don't be overcome with worry and anxiety when you're going through fiery trials like I'm going to do with three of your grandsons. I will also protect you from being consumed in the flames. Listen, that's the kind of a God we have. That's, that's the kind of a God with whom we have to do. We are God's new covenant people, also redeemed, also called by name and belonging to him. And if he loved and protected his beloved Israel under the old covenant, will he not do that and more for we who have trusted his son Jesus Christ in the new covenant? And even if flames, listen, even if flames do consume our bodies in this life, we have an eternity without flames. We have a flameless eternity to look forward to because we are eternally protected in him. Like the one guy said, the worst they can do to me is kill me. And that just ushers me into the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and an eternity of bliss with him. These are truths to anchor your soul to. Only God is God. You exist for his glory, and he loves you. He loves you. Maybe you needed to be in church today to hear these words from the Lord. I love you. I love you. You matter to me. You're precious to me. Isn't that good? Fuels the soul. One last one, anchor number four. Only God can save us. Only God can save us. 
Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I'm it. (laughs) I'm the only one who can save you. I revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God among you. Only God can save us. Anchor your soul to that. It's a rock-solid truth you can latch onto for life. I believe in the context here, it refers primarily to God's people being saved or rescued, listen, from his own righteous judgment. The Jewish people had sinned by worshiping other gods. God was rightly offended by this. His justice required them to be judged, and that judgment was going to impact them nationally and spiritually and personally. It would affect them in this life and the next. Their only hope, their only hope of ever being restored to God himself was God himself. They had no way of saving themselves. If they were going to be saved, it would have to be God who did it. We're in the same situation, human beings. It's still true. Only God can save us. In our day, I believe most people are actually trying to save themselves. You ever heard that term, self-salvation? And let's be honest, self-salvation effort can work in some ways. People may be able to save themselves some heartache by making some good choices in this life. That's true. They may be able to save themselves from a life of obscurity by contributing something positive to society. That's true. They may be able to save themselves from a lonely existence by making lots of friends and getting on Facebook and posting stuff on Instagram and, you know, having a strong family. All of these things are true, and they're all good things. But the one thing that human beings cannot save themselves from is the righteous judgment of God for their sins. They just can't do it. There's this guy who's, uh, I think, getting ready to enter the, the presidential race, uh, Bloomberg. How much is he worth? $100 billion or something like that? I mean, just mind-boggling. I can't even fathom that amount of money. Can you? But you know what? That's not enough money to buy salvation. Proverbs says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. You bringing me money? <laughs> I got gold streets here, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> can't bargain with God. You can't negotiate with God. You can't buy him off. Scripture is also clear that, that people's good deeds can't really cancel out the sins they've committed against God. I'm convinced most people who, who believe in God think this way. You know, yeah, I've done, some, yeah, yeah, I know, I've done some bad stuff. But hey, I've done a lot of good stuff, and I think they pluses cancel out the minuses, right? We're all good. No. No, it doesn't work that way. What kind of a God would just go, ah, yeah, I don't see that other stuff? What kind of justice would that be? If you absorb that, then you ask, well, how, then, how can anybody be saved then? That's a, the question the disciples ask. How, how's anybody going to be saved? If money can't purchase salvation, if good deeds can't cancel out our sins and earn salvation, how can anybody be saved? And I look a little further down into Isaiah 43, and I find this statement from the Lord. Verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Verse 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Yeah, you got a record of sins, pages and pages worth, and as God, I'm just going to blot them out. I'm going to erase them. How can he do that? How, How does God blot out people's transgressions for his own sake? How does a holy God like it says, remember our sins no more against us and still be just, right? When I hear that question, my mind goes forward several hundred years from Isaiah's day to the time of Jesus Christ, a time actually predicted by Isaiah. My mind goes to a scene where Jesus, the perfect God-man, was hanging there on a Roman cross, a thief 
on either side, a criminal on either side of him, him hanging there in the middle, agonizing in unimaginable pain. Can you imagine spikes being driven through your wrists and through your ankles and a spear thrust into your side and a crown of thorns mashed down into your skull? Gruesome scene, and there were people gathered around that scene, right? And some were, I mean, his mom was there, his friends were there, some were weeping. But others weren't weeping, others were laughing and jeering at him. They despised this one for claiming that he was God, that he was their creator, that he was their king. The Gospel of Matthew tells us they were mocking him and shouting out, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. How ironic. These people who had no way of saving themselves from judgment by a holy God were mocking the one who came to do that very thing. They laughed that he couldn't even save himself from being crucified. So how in the world was he going to save anybody else? But the further irony is this. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Listen, in order to save others, he couldn't save himself. He had to lay down his life. He had to lose his life so that others could be eternally saved. And that's what he did. Talk about love. That's the pinnacle of self-sacrificing love. Now, you've heard it said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus laid down his life for people who were not his friends, for these who despised him, who hated him, who drove nails into his hands. He laid down his life for his enemies, and he did it so that they might put their faith in him and have their sins blotted out, blotted out blotted out with his blood and be eternally saved from God's righteous judgment. Nobody can do that for themselves. Just as Israel could not free themselves from slavery in Egypt that needed a deliverer, so we human beings cannot free ourselves from our slavery to sin's power and sin's penalty we too need a deliverer, a savior, and God in his love for his people has supplied just such a one. Only God can save us. His son Jesus, the only savior. Well, I'll finish with two questions for you to consider today. And the first is very personal talked about only God can save us there's only one savior and so the question is have you have you have you have you have you ever let Jesus save you and you know how I like to ask it are you a hundred percent sure do you know that 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 your sins have been blotted out that your transgressions have been wiped away because you placed your full total complete trust and faith in that sacrifice of Jesus for you and you've called out to him I've talked to many people through the years who, even church attenders who believe they were saved, who were, who were pretty convinced they were saved, and probe a little bit, poke around a little bit, and you find out it's because they think they're a good person or because they come to church or, you know, their parents were saved and brought them up in church. But Jesus talked about being born again, which means there's a birthday. And just as we know our physical birthday if you are saved, you've had a spiritual birthday. There was a moment, there was a time when you called out, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I worry sometimes that too many people just kind of assume that they're in because of, you know, my family and church and stuff. No, but have you, have you, have you called on the name of the Lord? And I so urge you, if you're not sure that you ever have, to do that today. He stands ready and waiting and willing to hear your cry. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Second question is, do you have friends who you're not sure are saved? People you work with, people you love, family members. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. The, would you 
consider using December. Guess what? Your church wants to partner with you in helping introduce your friend to Jesus. That's what December is all about around here, our series, Whatever Happened to Baby Jesus. And I, I encourage you, pray and ask, ask the Lord to show you who you can invite any one of the next five weeks, including Christmas Eve. We're going to be unpacking the life of Jesus, the grown man who left the manger behind and grew up. Who do you know who doesn't know the Lord who needs to know more about Jesus? Let's pray about that right now, could we? Lord, I thank you for this incredible portion of scripture in Isaiah. Thank you for reminding us of these truths that, that, that provide something solid for our souls to, to be anchored to, that only you are God, that we exist to glorify you, that you love us, and that you're our only Savior. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's not 100% sure of where they stand with you, that their sins have been blotted out, may today be their spiritual birthday, Lord. May they come in just a moment to a prayer partner and say, I want to make sure about this. I want, I, want, I want today to be my spiritual birthday. But Lord, also place on our hearts the faces and names of those that, that we love who, who maybe don't know you. And maybe don't realize that baby Jesus got out of the manger <laughs> and did stuff, did God stuff. And I pray that even as you've placed two people on my own heart, Lord, that you would place at least two people on the hearts of our people here. Lord, let us capitalize on this opportunity to help people know Jesus. Give us courage where courage is needed, Lord, to boldly make an invitation. Thank you for loving your people, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Lord, we want to worship you right now. Receive our praise. From deep in our hearts, I pray in Christ's name, amen.